All right, friends, if we can, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, 1 through 9. And again, say amen to everything that Rafe just said. And again, please come to next week's baptism. I think right now we have up to maybe potentially 10 people getting baptized between Bridgeport and South Loop. So that is incredible, right? Praise God for that. And many of us know this, but every time someone gets baptized, that is someone saying that I am all in for Christ. I'm all in, man. And that's what the city needs to hear. So please join us and, and help us to celebrate uh, together. Again, if we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Kenson. I serve as the pastor of our Bridgeport Church. So always grateful to be with you all. So Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, we're going to continue on in our sermon series in the book of Acts. So let's read our verses, and then we'll jump right in, all right? So Acts 17. Starting at verse 1. And it says this. Now when they, whose they? It's Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, his team of missionaries. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, the known troublemakers in town here, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas and his team here, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And when the people in the city authorities were were disturbed when they had heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, many of us have heard about the frog in the kettle. It's been said that if you try to put a frog in a pot of boiling water, the frog would immediately jump out because it would feel the heat. The frog would know that it was in danger. But if you were to put that same frog in room temperature water and just slowly raise the temperature to a boiling, the frog would stay in the kettle and just boil to death. By keeping the temperature slow and gradual and not abrupt and sudden, it kept the frog right in its place. That even though it was in great danger, the frog never knew it. You know, I share this with you because we live in a world that puts a lot of pressure and influence on us. It's a world that tells us how to think what to buy, who to admire. It's always seeking to shape our values, priorities, and who we look up to. You know, recently I took my son and my parents to Las Vegas for some good eating and sightseeing. And when my son and I were walking down the strip here, we went, we went into some hotel lobbies and also some of the parking lots. And my son kept saying, 
Oh, look at that. It's a Tesla, McLaren, Ferrari, Dior, Prada, Rolex, Louis Vuitton, Balenciaga. I'm like, what language are you speaking right now, man? I have no idea what's going on. But I noticed that I was starting to see who was shaping what my son understood as the high life, as what success really looks like. We live in a world that exerts a lot of pressure on us to shape us. And just like the frog, we're in boiling water and we just don't know it. And if we are not careful, it will cripple our faith and our lives. That so often, this is what happens, is rather than changing our culture, changing our world, our world is changing us that we become a worldly church, reflecting the same morals and, and standards of the world. Friends, are you moving the world or is the world moving us? You know, today we're in Acts chapter 17 and we see Paul and his team continue their work in Macedonia, present day Europe, and now they move on from Philippi, which was in chapter 16. And now in chapter 17, we're in Thessalonica, now, Thessalonica was just over a 100-mile journey from Philippi. It was a major seaport in the area, and it was a large city, about 200,000 people, the second largest city in Greece, and it was also the capital of Macedonia. So again, we're seeing Paul's strategy of moving to massive urban centers to bring the gospel because as cities are reached for God, it will trickle down to everywhere else, into towns and tribes and, and smaller areas. Now, because of Paul's faithfulness, people are coming to faith in Christ and they are receiving the message of the good news. But as we've seen in Philippi and now in Thessalonica, you have some folks who will receive it and you will also have folks who will reject it and absolutely hate this message. That it says in our verses that the mob is looking for Paul and his team and when they can't find him, they go to the house of Jason where they've been staying at. They drag Jason and some of the brothers out and this is what they say. Verses six again. And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city's authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Notice, the world is not moving Paul. Paul is moving the world. Now, when this mob says this about Paul and his team, I'm sure that in their hearts, they didn't mean it as a compliment. But can I just say that as Christ followers, this is very much a compliment. You know, as Rafe did so well last week, reminding us again that we live in a very fallen world, a, a world that is broken by sin. So for you to come in and turn this world upside down, praise the Lord, we need more believers to do this. Because what the world calls right side up is really upside down. You know, when Paul comes to preach the gospel and to point people to God, he's not turning the world upside down. He's turning the world back to God's original ideal. That to be in harmony with God, loving God, praising Jesus, trusting Jesus, living a life of holiness and purity, that is not upside down. That is right side up. And as we'll see here in Acts chapter 17, the way that Paul and his team upend the world is not with some genius marketing strategy. It's not because they had more money than everyone else. It's not because they had a massive army and all these latest, you know, technology of weapons. All Paul and his team had was the good news of Jesus, and it changed everything. Everything. 
So with that, here are the three reasons to why the gospel turns everything upside down. Here are the three points that are going to move us along. Three reasons. First, we have the news of an upside-down Savior. Upside-down Savior. Second, we have the news of an upside-down king and his kingdom. And then finally, we have the news of upside-down believers. Okay, so an upside-down Savior, upside-down king and kingdom, and upside-down believers. So first, the reason the gospel turns the world upside-down is because we have the news of an upside-down Savior. Verses 1 and 3 again. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, just three weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what's happening here is Paul does what he normally does, is that when he goes into new places, he first goes to the Jewish synagogue to share the gospel. He does this by engaging Jews and those who are God-fearing Gentiles. And what he does is that he looks for people who are already spiritually seeking, people who have a working understanding of the God of the Old Testament. And Paul begins to try to connect the spiritual dots for them. That he's trying to tell them that everything that you see, everything that you're practicing, everything that you're longing for, that all points to Jesus. Christ. Now, here's the thing. The Jews know that Jesus was special. There's no denying that. He performed incredible miracles. His teaching ministry was unmatched. He was from the line of the King of David. These were all things during the earthly ministry of Christ that made people say, is he the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? And and the Messiah is actually translated in the Greek, Christ. Just so you know, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. That's his title, okay? Christ is his title, and it means Messiah, the anointed one of God. So people are asking, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is he the one that's going to save the Jewish people? And you can read all about this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So this was happening during Christ's earthly ministry until, until Jesus suffered and died on the cross. When that happened, people stopped saying that. You know, for the Jewish person back then and for the Jewish person today, this is the primary reason why they won't worship Jesus as Messiah. Because if Jesus is God, what kind of God would die? What kind of God would die? That is just so upside down. Look again at verses 2 and 3 here. So Paul's at the synagogue. He's reasoning from them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. What is he proving? That it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. You know, many years ago, I was on a short-term missions trip here at Park going to Turkey. And I had a conversation with a Muslim man and asked him this question. What do you believe about Jesus? And he said to me, Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet. Next to Muhammad, there was no greater prophet. But we do not believe he is God. As a matter of fact, he cannot be God. And he was emphatic about that. And I said, hey, well, hold on there. Hold on. I'm a Christian, and I believe very strongly 
that Jesus is God, that much of the teachings in Scripture says that he is God. Jesus said words like that. Then he said this, you believe that Jesus is God, but you also believe that Jesus died. But if God is eternal and all-powerful, how can he die? What kind of God dies? This critique from this Muslim man is the very same one from the Jewish people. If Jesus is truly God, he simply can't suffer and die. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you look closely at scripture, we see that the Messiah was always going to suffer. In Genesis chapter 22, we have the story of Abraham nearly sacrificing his son Isaac, which pointed to the truth that God the Father will sacrifice his son on the cross. That you have Isaiah chapter 53, which gives a prophecy of how the Messiah will be a suffering servant. That this will be someone who will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In Psalm chapter 22, Jesus quotes as he hangs from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Paul was doing in the synagogues. He was opening up the Old Testament because there was no New Testament at that time. It was the Old Testament. They all shared the same Bible. And Paul's saying, look, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It all points to him. But here's the question. If the suffering Messiah is all over Scripture, why does Paul have to work so hard to prove that it was necessary? Why so much resistance to it? You know, I think it's because to say that the Messiah had to suffer and die is for us to be willing to own up that it was my sins that put him there. That Jesus didn't die on the cross because he was weak and feeble and overpowered. He died because I was weak, because I was feeble. In the same way, we resist the suffering of Jesus. And the way we do this is by minimizing our sins that we believe and say to ourselves, you know what, I'm really not that bad. Or we look at this other person, we watch the news, oh, thank God, I'm not like those sinners. Or something that we say a lot as Christians, I know I've said this a ton in my life, I fell into sin. I fell into sin. Now, the problem with that phrase is that it makes it sound like we sinned by accident. It's like I'm driving on the road, I hit a pothole, whoops, you know, I, I totally did not see that, it was my fault. What the Bible teaches consistently is that no one accidentally falls into sin, but we willfully choose to do it. Also, many of us, we don't repent on a daily basis. We can go for weeks or days without repenting. Are you saying that you have not sinned at all that entire week, that entire day? We don't do that. Instead of sharing our sins openly, we hide our sins. The fact that we are so gentle with our sins shows that we've gotten too comfortable with it. We are making the same mistake as these Jews. We really don't understand who we are and how desperate our situation is. That our sins deserve death and the penalty of offending a perfect and righteous God is not just a bodily death, it is a spiritual death. That for all eternity that we are separated from God and thus separated from his goodness and his love and his joy. And this is the fate of everyone on this world. And none of us can ever work our way out of it or be good enough because the only bar to reach into heaven is moral perfection. And none of us can ever do that. Left to ourselves, we are destined to a Christless eternity. But here's the good news. Here is the upside-down news that we have. 
Jesus did die in our place. Jesus did pay the penalty for our sins. He was tortured, he was falsely accused, he was killed, and he was buried because that's exactly what we deserve. That it was through Jesus, God would provide the final perfect sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God who will wipe away all the sins of the world. That it's through his death we can now receive forgiveness of sins and have a right relationship with God. So here's the question. What kind of God would die? It's a God who loves us. It is a God who loves us. It's a God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What kind of God would die? It's a God who knew that in order for us to have life, he would have to conquer death through the resurrection. What kind of God would die? It's a God who proves to us that he is more gracious than we are sinful. Can I just say that if we want to turn the world upside down, we need to show our need for a savior every single day. We live in a world right now that spends too much time pretending pretending that they have it all together, pretending that through my bank account, through my looks, through my accomplishments, I'm all good. No, you're not good. If you want to turn the world upside down, we have got to stop pretending and we need to begin to show our need for a savior because that's precisely what the world is hungering for. They need to know that there is a savior who knows everything about you, the good and all the bad, and still dies for you because that's how much he loves you. That is an upside down savior. Amen? Amen, okay, that's some good gospel stuff. Amen, okay? Here's the second reason why the gospel turns the world upside down. It's because we have the good news of an upside down king and his kingdom. You know, so the Jews are angry and the people are coming to faith in Christ and they form a mob looking for Paul and Silas. They go to the house of Jason because they gave room to Paul and Silas. And when they couldn't find them, they drag them out and they continue to say this, right? Verse six, they've turned the world upside down. Verse seven, and Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, what the mob is doing here is making an accusation against all Christians. They are not obeying Caesar. Instead, they are following Jesus as king. And let me just say, they are not wrong. And eventually, this will lead to the mass persecution and murder of Christians under Nero because the Christians would not give their allegiance to King Caesar, but only to King Jesus. This was also the same accusation that was made against Jesus. Do you remember the title that was put on the cross above the head of Jesus? It said, the King of the Jews. What did he put on his head? A crown of thorns. They also put a purple robe on him, which was a color of royalty. This was all mockery as Jesus was dying on the cross. So the Jews stir up the mob by saying, by saying this because they knew that this was an accusation that could have Paul and his team executed by the sword. So here's the question. Why were the Jews so worked up? What led them to such extreme measures? Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous. Now, what were they jealous of? They were jealous 
of losing their power and control. That as they're looking out, people are converting to Christianity. And what it meant is that they were no longer following and revering them. They were no longer practicing the tithe. They were no longer participating in their religious activities. They were starting to see that everything around in society, like it was, everything was starting to change. And now they were following Paul and the teachings of Jesus. Notice that their violence and anger isn't rooted in doctrine. It's not rooted in theology. It's rooted in power and control. They could care less about the content of what Paul is saying. They didn't care if Jesus was the true way to salvation, the only way to salvation. They didn't care if Jesus was the Lord of lords and King, King of kings. All that mattered to them was to protect their tiny kingdom. Can I just say, this same battle is the one that goes on in our hearts every single day with every single decision. Which kingdom am I going to live for? Which king am I truly going to serve? That when we say the Lord's Prayer, do we really want his kingdom to come? Or do we really want our kingdom to come and our will to be done in our work, in our relationships, in our family, and so forth? So just like the mob, we love being in control and getting our way, but we have to remember this, that the thing about the kingdom of God is that it will never live at peace with the kingdom of self, that there will never be a truce, that there's no such thing as a demilitarized zone. Each kingdom will demand our loyalty and worship. They will always be in conflict with one another. But this is how the gospel turns the world upside down. It's when believers, people like you and me, choose to live for a greater kingdom than their own. That we choose to advance the kingdom of God over the kingdom of self. And unlike the world, we, we don't advance the kingdom. Like the world advances its kingdom by exercising power over other people. The kingdom of God advances by exercising power under by serving others. Look at our King Jesus. When he, came, when he came to bring the kingdom of God, he didn't do so with the sword. He did so with the cross. You know, in John chapter 18, Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting right now that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. What we see in our verses here is that the Jews, the mob, they trusted in the power of the, of the mob, of, of group violence to get their way. Paul trusts in the power of the king, and he keeps preaching. The mob trusts in Caesar to secure them. Believers trust in Christ. We live in a kingdom of the world that is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But the kingdom of Jesus is one that turns the other cheek. It forgives those who have wronged us seven times, 77 times. We go the extra mile. We love and pray for our enemies. This is an upside-down kingdom ethic, and this is how the kingdom of God grows. It does not grow through the sword. It grows through the cross. The king, what kingdom are we living for? As Christ followers, who are we going to re represent in our daily lives? Will we carry the swords and focus our hearts on personal safety? Or, are we, or will we carry our crosses looking to give up our rights to bring others closer to Jesus? This is the story of Acts. It's the stories of believers sacrificing themselves repeatedly and taking on these immense risks 
to share the gospel so that others can be saved. That if you remember last week's sermon about the story of the jailer, an earthquake comes, opens up the jail cells, unshackles all the prisoners, and Paul could have fled, but he chose to stay. But here's the thing. If Paul was living for the kingdom of the world, he would have left and he would have let the jailer kill himself, but because Paul lived for the kingdom of the cross because he knew that his eternity and salvation was secure. He stayed put and extended compassion to his enemy and then was able to see God transform this jailer's heart. This is how a few men turned the world upside down. They didn't do so by barging into cities and taking it over like a military coup. Uh, unlike, very, very much like what we're seeing in Afghanistan, that when the Taliban took over the president's office, did you guys notice what the pictures were all, all were? They're all standing there with their machine guns and body armor because that's how they were saying, this is how we took over. This is how we conquered this area. It was through the sword. The disciples changed the world but with nothing more than the good news of Jesus. They had no power in themselves. They had no weapons. All they had was a message of a king who died for their sins and rose again. That's all they had. That's what we have. And that's the good news that can turn a world upside down. And here's the final reason the gospel turns the world upside down. It's because you have upside-down believers. Verse 4 and 5. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous. So we see here the two effects of Paul's ministry. Some were persuaded and some were not. And we also see in verses 4 and 5 that the response to the gospel was not half-hearted, but these were very strong reactions, that you, had, that you either loved what you were hearing or you hated what you were hearing, that you either had some people saying, let's go for it, and then you had others who said, it's time for you to go home. Being indifferent was not an option. And this was also true with Jesus in his teaching, that Jesus never spoke in a way that gave you an option to be in the middle of the road with him, that either you will deny yourself or not. Either you will give it all away or not. Either you will believe that he is the only way, truth, and life or not. This is why Jesus and Paul caused the stir wherever they went is because they weren't accommodating to culture and to other worldviews. They were confronting it. And this is what was causing the stir in Thessalonica. It wasn't the fact that Paul was preaching the gospel, and I'm sure the message rattled some folks, but what really got people uncomfortable was the fact that there was now a revival that was happening in their midst. Because think about this. If Paul was just preaching the gospel, but no one was responding, people wouldn't even bother wasting their time dealing with Paul. They would just ignore him. But the reason they're paying attention to Paul is they're starting to see, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Lives are changing. Lifestyles are changing. Priorities are changing. People are spending their money differently. How they're spending their time. Who they're listening to and following. How they're treating other people. Do you see, before the gospel ever turns the world upside down, it first turns the believer upside down. What makes the world uncomfortable is when believers are unwilling to be comfortable with the ways of the world. This is what turns a world upside down. It's not first when we preach the gospel to the world. It's when we first preach the gospel to ourselves every day. 
and we allow the good news to change us from the inside out. That is how it happens. Let me just give you some examples here. For example, it's when we realize that we've lost nothing but gained everything in Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, that will turn others upside down. Because right now, we live in a world where everyone is constantly looking out for the gains of this world. We're trying to maximize our earthly pleasures, whether it be through eating at the trendiest restaurants, you know, buying that new toy, getting all those social media likes, traveling the world, that we are in a frenzy right now to collect all these experiences and to make sure that my time on earth is going to be maximized, you know, to have all the happiness possible. But can I just say, this leaves us all empty because we miss out on the one person who truly matters, and that's Jesus Christ. If you want to be someone who turns the world upside down, chase what truly matters, and that is knowing Christ. Here's another example of lives being turned upside down because our lives are turned upside down. It's because we know that it's in our weakness we are made strong, and we will boast in it gladly. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. We're in a world that teaches us to be strong, independent, and self-sufficient. And let me just say, this is not bad. This is good. Because God wants us to mature. He wants us to be able to grow in responsibility. But it can become bad when it puffs up our pride. When it makes us judge others who we think are less than us. Or we try to hide our insecurities. What the, what the upside-down gospel tells us is that we are to confess our weaknesses. We are to lay it bare. Why? It's because when we acknowledge that we are at the end of our rope, that's usually when God shows up. It's when we are transparent with our struggles, the power of God shines the brightest. You know, this past week, I was talking to someone who was thinking about getting baptized this coming Sunday. And one of the concerns that he had was that he felt that his life was just too messy to be baptized. That they were struggling with things that they just didn't, didn't believe that should be present for a life of a believer. And because of that, he was saying that, you know what, I, I don't want to dishonor Christ in this baptism. I, I'm just not there yet. Uh, this is what I told him. What is going to bring glory to Jesus in your baptism is not when you stand in the water celebrating your moral perfection. It's not when you're standing in the water and saying, hey, look, I made it. Or saying, standing in the water saying that I'm worthy of Jesus' love. Or you stand in the water saying, hey, look, I've conquered this sin. No. You bring Jesus the most glory when you head into the water and say, I'm a sinner in need of grace. That the very reason I'm getting baptized today is because I need him and I love him. I don't want to live another day without him. Jesus has not brought glory in our sufficiency. He has brought all the glory in our desperation. That will turn a world upside down. And let me just give you one last example here. It's knowing it's more blessed to give than to receive. To the world, this is so upside down. Because it feels good to be showered with gifts and to be valued. But sacrifice... Ah, that doesn't feel so good. It doesn't feel so good not to have those things. It doesn't feel so good to have less money. It doesn't feel so good to live with limits. But as Christ followers, we give and we give generously because we have a generous Father who withholds no good gift from his children. 
in a world that hoards, where possessions give us worth and security and significance, we give with joy and contentedness because Christ is sufficient for all our needs. This will turn a world upside down. You know, many years ago, you know, when my unbelieving immigrant parents found out that our family was giving over 10% to the church and to charities and to missionaries, they lost their mind. They lost their mind. Now keep this in mind. This is from an immigrant mindset. They have just left from a place of incredible financial insecurity to come to a new place for financial security for them and also for their family and to see their children giving money to a church that they don't believe in. That's just crazy stuff. That it's one thing to give a tip to the church here and there. Here's a tip, here's a tip, here's a tip. But to regularly tithe, that is crazy. And I remember even to this day what my parents were saying to me. What are you doing? Think about all that you can have by not doing that. Think about all that you can do. Think about all the places you can travel. And when we had kids, it got really dirty. They said, think about your kids. Think about their college. Think about their security. Look at all that you can make for them. Why would you give so much away? My answer, my wife's answer, both of us, our answer is very simple. We're not building our kingdom. We're building God's kingdom. That's what we're committed to. Okay, yeah, that's okay. Okay, it got a little awkward there. Okay. All right, give that to Jesus. Okay, give that to Jesus. But can I just point something out to you guys? The simple act of just giving generously made my parents go nuts. It turned their world upside down. Can I just say, it's not going to take much as Christ followers to change the world, to change our offices, to change our neighborhoods. Just live out what you see in Scripture. And that's how it's always going to happen. That if we want to change anything around us, first let the gospel turn you upside down and the change will come. You will see it begin to happen. Are you preaching the gospel to yourself every single day? You know, something I love in our verses here is it says in verse 2 that when Paul was doing this, when he was in the city of Thessalonica, it says that he was only here for three Sabbath days, which really only means that he was actually in the city for three weeks, reasoning with them, opening up scripture, probably doing street evangelism. That's all the time he had. But do you know what we know? We know that within that short period of time, a church gets planted. How do you know? In the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, there's a church in the city of Thessalonica. Notice that within that time, there's not enough time for community analysis, demographic surveys, strategic operations and meetings, like all the stuff that people talk about nowadays for church planting. But what we see here is that three weeks was all the Holy Spirit needed to leave a church in that city, to leave a gospel impact. Can I just say, that is my prayer. I know that this is Pastor Rafe's prayer for us here in South Loop, in University Village, in the Loop, in Pilsen, in Bronzeville, and for our future church plan in Hyde Park, is that we would turn our neighborhoods upside down because we are an upside down people, following an upside down savior, following an upside down king. I pray that we would not have a mild form of Christianity, but one that is radical. I pray, we pray, that the world would not move us, but that we would move the world. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you 
for the good news that turns everything upside down. Or better yet, that turns everything right side up. God, help us to be a people. Help us to be a church. They got that doesn't grow comfortable with the ways of this world. They got that we're not comfortable sitting in this kettle of boiling water. But that, Father, that we would be people. People who are living in such a way where the gospel is shown brightly, where the gospel is shown boldly, where the gospel is shown courageously. Father, help us to step into conversations, step into different circumstances and environments, and to be able to show another way, to be able to show the Savior's way, to be able to show the kingdom way, to be able to show that there is Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you so much. Thank God that we're reminded again of the God, of what kind of God would die. And Father, it is a God who loves us. As a God who's given everything for us. So Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do the same. Lord, help us to give our all. Lord, help us to reach others for the sake of your son's name. It's in his name we pray.